Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on. Pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra and elsewhere, and gives respect to elders past, present and emerging. listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. Today, we're pleased to bring you Tony Birch in conversation with Laura LaRosa. Tony is the author of a number of titles, including Ghost River, which won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writing, and Blood, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. Tony joined Laura at Richmond Library earlier this year to discuss his most recent novel, The White Girl, which you can currently find on the Red Hot Read shelf at Yarra Libraries. This is an edited recording. So I just want to give you a little bit of context around the book, as I'm sure some of you haven't read it yet. So The White Girl is set in 1963. Um, it's a fictional story told through the eyes of Aboriginal matriarch Odette Brown. Odette has her granddaughter, 13-year-old Sissy, permanently in her care, and the book is as much about Sissy as it is about Odette. The book's set in a fictional town in North New South Wales or Queensland, we don't actually know, during the Menzies government and a few years before the 1967 referendum. Now, a lot of people, we kind of live and breathe these historical events, but for context, that was essentially a constitutional win, if you like, for Aboriginal rights. Now, this was on the back of the decades of um, protection acts which were essentially over control over Aboriginal lives as well as segregation policies which caused a lot of fragmentation so this book is sort of happening on the back of decades of that while that's still kind of taking place but at the same time the movement for Aboriginal rights was just starting to really gather momentum So it was during a time where the removal of Aboriginal children, particularly those deemed as light-skinned, was rife. Children were stolen, families were forcibly fragmented, and Aboriginal people lived with enormous loss and great uncertainty. To wrap that part up, the story is a beautiful depiction of love, grief, trauma and tenacity, and and Tony's been quite generous in, in sort of inviting us into the lives of a fictional character at that time. And the characters, they, you know, they're quite complex and there's a lot of courage and heart and you'll hear more about that tonight. So I just want to kick off questions. Um, I want to start with the relationship between Odette and her granddaughter, Sissy. Obviously, Odette is the apple of Sissy's eye and vice versa. But the way this kind of story, the way you've written this story, Tony, her love, so Odette's love for her granddaughter, it's, uh, it's unwavering, but it's not overtly sentimental. And it's sort of kind of done through undertones and even Odette's own stubbornness and ability to kind of push through her own physical pain when she's putting Sissy's welfare first. And, I guess what I'd love you to speak to is what was the inspiration behind the dynamic with these two women? Um, and thank you very much, um, Laura. Um, it was a, there were several factors. Um, one was that I originally trained as a historian, so I, I did my PhD in history. I taught Aboriginal history at Melbourne Uni for about five years. 
And one of my strong research interests was to look at the letters written by Aboriginal women who had lived on reserves and missions in Victoria, probably from about the 1920s into the 1950s. And they're remarkable, uh, a remarkable research source. I mean, the letters that those women write are just so poignant because they're women writing from the kitchen table and they're writing the things that I think people would understand. They want more food for their family. They want the leaks in the roof fixed. They want their children to be able to stay with them. And they wrote with, with such beauty. So that, that was always there in the background. And then if we move sort of forward, one of the, I think one of the worst abuses of these women occurred after the 1997 release of the Bring Them Home Report where 300 Aboriginal people gave evidence to the Human Rights and Opportunity Commission about their treatment having been removed from family or older Aboriginal people talking about the loss of their loved ones. And the press in Australia, as it is a traditionally conservative and at that time an overt right-wing press, there was a lot of really violent criticism of those people. And people may have heard these stories about Aboriginal women giving their children up to the state for a better life, or Aboriginal women who were incompetent, Aboriginal women, women who couldn't look after their kids, kids living in squalid conditions. And I knew, I knew all that was false. But more than that, it was, it was such an attack on women who had done such a tenacious and courageous job in keeping their children. But also the, the shocking circumstances. I, I followed through two women who wrote to the Chief Secretary of Victoria, and again, people often think this is an issue in Northern Australia. Two women I know, and I know their families, wrote for two decades, for 20 years, trying to have a child return, who eventually vanished because her records were, were expunged. They could never find that child again. And two decades later, a you know, 12-year-old girl's a 32-year-old woman, and her mother and auntie are still trying to find her of course, of which they never do. So I had that in the background, but of course, as a novelist, all that historical information is interesting, but in the end, if you're writing a novel, you've got to write a really a good story. So I decided that I did want to write a story about an Aboriginal grandmother who would show her courage, but as she just picked up, she's the sole care of her granddaughter, Sissy, who's 13 years of age and very fair, very fair skin, which does make her a target for removal. But Odette's love is conveyed through really her her support, her protection of her granddaughter, not through sort of overt displays of love. So she's a fairly stubborn, crusty, strong woman. And in that love, the way that she expresses it, what she's doing, she knows that she's a woman in her 60s, we know that she's very sick, and we know that she knows if, if she can't build strength in that 13-year-old girl, what will happen when she's not around because that girl doesn't have anyone else. So what Odette is doing is showing her granddaughter and teaching her to be strong, and her love is part of that, but she doesn't have, her, you say, as you say, those sentimental displays. And I did know before I wrote a word that whatever else I did in this novel, one, that this Odette Brown was going to be a remarkable character. Um, there was no doubt about that. And I wanted readers to 
get become immersed in this desperate need that Odette has to protect her granddaughter and also the ramifications of what happens to other people when they're not in the same position. So as you would know, we meet other characters in the novel who have lost children and to the devastating effect. So she meets a wonderful woman, um, Dolores Reed, and this is sort of something that, to give you the sense of what Aboriginal women have to go through. Dolor Dolores has photographs of her two Aboriginal daughters who are red hair and freckled, so they're a real target for the state. And when Odette goes back to where she first met this woman, she inherits those photographs and she doesn't want them initially. She doesn't want to take them because she knows once she picks those photographs up, she can never release them. And she, in a sense, becomes the surrogate grandma for those girls who we don't know where they are. And she carries those photographs with her wherever she goes. Mm. And I know that through talking to old Aboriginal women who when you, I did some work on the Stolen Generations for Melbourne Museum way back in 1998, the foundational exhibition. I would go and talk to old aunties and women and they would get a shoebox out and literally take the photographs out of children who had been gone for 40 years mm. and, say, and lay them out on the kitchen table. And they really were the repositories of that file in history and they could never let go of those photographs because it would be like disposing of those children. Yeah, it's quite astonishing. And it's interesting that you referred to your work as a historian, in, as a historian um, and looking at those old texts and those letters from the kitchen table. There's a lot of play with imagery and rituals in this book, particularly within domestic settings. And that's something I really love about books from the, the weekly baths that Odette and Sissy run for each other and that kind of ritual and that anticipated affection that comes from that to, you know, looking at the details and the meals that they share. And even though there's some harrowing themes, there's a lot of joy and a lot of ritual. And I guess what I want to know is those kind of intrinsic details, what do you think they bring to storytelling? Well, firstly, I'll... The bath scene, and when you say the bath scene, it sounds like a Hitchcockian nightmare, doesn't it? And the bath on the front of the book, people go, oh, there's a bath on the front of the book, what happened? You know, it doesn't all go well. The bath scene and the bath scenes in this book, each of them are incredibly tender. And the first bath scene is when um, Odette runs the bath, or they both run the bath and Sissy has a bath. And that whole chapter, which also was released as a standalone short story, is I wanted to show the beautiful tenderness between a woman and her granddaughter, yeah, the physical touch of washing. Yeah, I, and my daughter, when she launched the book, yeah, I'm like, we're huge on family baths, yeah, everyone in the same bath, which is quite amusing, because my daughter since been married to tell everyone at the launch that her husband wears his underpants in the bathroom. <laughs> We're really big on family baths, and one of the things, I, I wrote a poem, one of my first poems, I love washing my daughter's hair in the bath, there's something beautiful about it. So in that scene, it's about the, the touch between Odette and her granddaughter. So where there is violence in this book, it's sort of off screen, the beauty between this Aboriginal woman and her granddaughter is what's on screen. So when a reader reads this novel, 
while that history is harrowing, I think what readers will get about will get out of it is that incredible love, and there is a, a sort of a sensuality in that moment as well. And then, of course, that's reversed later when Odette has a bath. And so, firstly, it was to convey that, and secondly, which some people have picked up, it's the way that certain tastes convey something of connection to people. So, there's a scene very early in the book where Odette cuts up slices of what we call fried bread. You know, you used to have fried bread on dripping. And my, when we were really didn't have any money, my mum used to tell us if we were only having black tea and fried bread, we were having that sort of same meal that Superman ate before he went out to conquer. And it was, yeah, it was the, it was the antidote to kryptonite. So we, we'd sort of munch on this and think, when are we gonna fly, you know? But there's a moment when Odette eats the the bread, and she savours the taste, even though it's seen as sort of, you know, poverty food. It's all those rituals around her understanding of her place. So whether it be in relationship to her and Sissy, or her childhood, I wanted to evoke that. And the other thing is, with a lot of my work, this kitchen, the kitchen table is everything. So that when they're in Dean, when they're still living in Dean, and even a couple of scenes towards the end when they're staying with Jack at his house. Um, what's important is that in my growing up, the kitchen is everything. And I know people here would be the same. And so the domestic is not you know, relegated to you know, second class women's business. It's where the heart of the, the house is. And you notice that they, she lights the wood fire to start the kettle up. Yeah, now I've got you know, central heating and central cooling but I still love that idea of going into a cold kitchen and making a fire and then it starts to heat up and then it really glows. And it's interesting, when I gave the book to my mum last week who um, ended up coming to the Lord, she wasn't going to come, I went to her house in Collingwood, she has no central heating, she had no heating in any room other than the kitchen. So all the doors are shut and you go into this little oven and it's, so, it's just so hot, but there's something beautiful about it. So. All those, all of my work has been about that. I love the physical touch, and I think a lot of people convey their affection to other people just through the slightest gesture of touch. So I'd rather show that. So with Odette, we know that she loves Sissy one because she protects her, but also we know it through her tenderness with her hand. You know, um, the African American writer Alice Walker, my favourite poem of her, as hers is. She has a line, these women have fists as well as hands. And she talks about the fists being used to bang down the doors of education that exclude African-American kids, but the hand of tenderness. And Odette is like that. She's got a fist and she'll use it. And she's got this beautiful open hand that she she would never raise a fist to a sissy, for instance. Yeah. And just, I guess, talking about physical touch, one of the scenes your daughter, Siobhan, was talking about at the launch last week, which is quite heart-wrenching and really um, hits home for a lot of us, is where Odette, in her travels, in her quest to kind of protect sissy, she meets a woman at the hotel, Wanda, I think, and... You know, they recognise that somewhere along that kind of conversation, they recognise each other as being Aboriginal. And this woman as that she meets has, was removed from her community a long time ago. And she sort of says to Odette, can I, can I have a hug? 
and Odette says, sure, Bob, and she embraces her, and it's this really, really beautiful moment where you kind of you know that this woman hasn't had that physical touch from a, from an Aboriginal woman in such a long time. Well, I mean, that was also not based on a single incident, but and this is this is not just not only about Aboriginal children, but yeah, you know, we've just gone through this terrible Royal Commission into child abuse, and I grew up in a time when the institution was was everything. So that you know, I had school friends who ended up in institutions for, for very dubious reasons, some good reasons. But one of the things that you'll hear from kids who have gone through that system and they've maybe gone from you know, children's home to the prison system or whatever, is they will talk as older people and it's so tragic that they never they were never touched with love from the moment they left their mother. And any touch they had was you know, violent, whether it be physical or sexual abuse. And there's a very brief moment before this in the book which almost slips by when um, Odette gives Henry Lamb, who's the guy who runs a junkyard, and it says, She'd never touched the white man before, and then it says not voluntarily. So we know that there's something else there. So again, whatever that means is off screen because I wanted to alert readers to that. But what matters on the page is that her and Henry hug. And in the case with her and Wanda, it's about Wanda's an adult Aboriginal woman, probably in her mid 20s, around 30 maybe even, who has never seen her mother since she was a small child. And she sees this Aboriginal woman, and every time she sees an older Aboriginal woman, she starts to imagine that it's her mother because she goes through this desperate hope, and then it's always not her mother. But even after realising that she wants the touch of Odette. And when they hug, she just savours the smell of the older woman's body, and she can feel her heartbeat. It's almost like that heartbeat you miss from a childhood. And it's, you know, when people used to talk about that notion, it's called a failure to fry, but often it comes from babies or kids who are not held and not loved and, and they suffer psychological or physical neglect because of that. And that's the experience of, of, of some of these people. But again, in this book, it's a, it's a balancing act of saying, I don't want to avoid these issues. In other words, I do want people who read this book to finish this book and say what these people went through in this book and in real life was horrific. So it's, it's we don't do happy endings. Yeah, it's actually one in any form. Um, but but I would also hope that the readers say, but these these are mighty people. These are really great people in this book, and maybe we might think about people outside the book who are equally mighty people. One thing that really struck me about the book is that you don't bear all and you don't tell us everything. And that example of when Odette says, you know, I don't think I've touched a white man voluntarily, you know, without explaining what's happened, it kind of leaves the reader with... But once, when you, I guess when you mentioned Henry Lamb, so he's, he's a white guy around the same age as Odette and he's... He's just got this innate goodness about him and he just, see, he's got this really kind of explicit sense of right and wrong and he just does the right thing and he's one of several characters which I guess you could say falls into the kind of binary as the good characters and then you've got these other characters that are a lot darker. 
One of the things I think with fiction is that it's quite tempting to try and resolve these darker or these bad characters or find some moral resolution. And I think you've been really restrained in that where you haven't romanticised this. And there is malice and there is colonial violence and, you know, there is, it, you haven't kind of made this a parable as such where everything kind of gets resolved in the end. And I guess my question on that is how does that angle play out when you're discussing it with editors and publishers and it, is that something you need to negotiate? Well, I do sort of, but I'm pretty strong-minded about these issues. I mean, yeah, you, your editor is there to help you produce the best work you can, so it's not like oh, you can argue with the editor over, over grammar. But some of the scenes that your editor might say, well, why is she doing this and how would that relate to that? And those questions are important because it may mean that you haven't signposted enough in the story of where you're going. So those issues were negotiated, but in relationship, it works in the good and bad. So we have two policemen in the town. One is um, Bill Shea, who's about to retire, and he's hopeless. He's a childhood friend of Odette. And he said that, yeah, when we used to play in the riverbed together, I used to think I was a black fellow. And she said, so did I. Not because of his colour, because why else would a kid play with Aboriginal kids? He was in with those kids. And then he turns out to be the town copper, and he's not a malevolent figure, but he's, he's a, he drinks. And he drinks because he, he feels implicated in seeing children removed, and he becomes a sort of a hopeless figure. Now what's odd about that, and this relates to the, what you might call the summary justice that, that is meted out in country towns, because he's pretty slack, Odette lives her life of relative freedom because she just doesn't do his job. Now when the new policeman, um, Sergeant Lowe, comes to town, he's quite a, not only is he a very um, institutionalised, driven man, he's, yeah, he's quite pathological in some ways. And He's very different because he knows that there are certain laws in place that can allow him in, not only to interfere in Odette's life, but to take control of, of Sissy, the, the girl who he starts to cover. And my feeling with that is that I don't, and I believe this, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of an allegorical writer in some ways, I don't believe that I have to show um, Lowe was a, you know, a fully rounded man who goes home and does macrame of a night, you know. Or, yeah, people always tell you that Adolf Hitler loved painting and loved opera. Yeah, so what, you know. Um, so he's a bad man. And I read too much about bad policemen who, you know, wrote back to these mothers who said, who begged to see their children, who begged to see their children. And the policemen knowing that, you know, in the women that I'd, re that I'd researched, yeah, a woman writing to the local policeman for a decade and saying, my heart is breaking. My, I'm, I will die soon, I am ill. Please let me see my daughter. And then the policeman running back, so cold-hearted. No, you cannot see your daughter. She's a half-caste child. She's been sent to someone. So do not write to me again or we will remove Russian from your whole family. That means we will starve you out. So when you are looking at that history, I think to me it's more important to say these people responsible for this violence, they were bad people. Now, having said that, not only with Henry Lamb, but with Dr. Singer, with a man like a railway porter, when Odette gets lost at the railway station, this railway porter goes, hey, go and love, let me give you a, a ride up, and he puts her on his um, trolley. The other thing about the books is to say, 
Aboriginal women like Odette Brown, they, they meet wonderful non-Aboriginal people all the time. You know, Henry is her lifelong friend. As you say, he is such emotionally intelligent. Dr. Singer, the Jewish doctor, comes down, he treats her for the first time with respect as a woman. Mm. So when he has to examine her when she's ill, she's so uncomfortable of having to even remove her dress in front of this non-Aboriginal person, but he's so respectful, so dignified, that she is shocked by the dignity of this man. So all through the book, I hope I have shown that this is a book that says, okay, there is another way to act. And people like Henry and Dr. Singer, they are people who act with, with dignity. So in that sense, even though it's a historical novel, I hope when people read the book, they would say, okay, this is not simply a black and white issue. It's about human dignity. It's about our ethical relationships. And Henry is a great example of a, of a man who is outraged that would be treated with anything other than respect. He, 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 to him, it makes, it's illogical that people would treat her badly. And he has the courage to not only treat her well, but to, to give great dignity to that friendship. Yeah, I think what um, the book kind of shows as well is that while, you know, this was a couple of years off the referendum, which is, you know, a highly debated thing. I mean, the constitution itself is a very kind of post-colonial construct. Um, but what it shows is that the the way kind of Aboriginal people were treated within particular communities or missions, it really depended on what the level of racism that the local authorities showed and certainly the kind of relationship that they had with them. And that's really shown when you essentially have this new cop come into town and you go from Bill, who's this, like you said, sort of hopeless figure to someone who's is quite nasty and it seems like quite determined to have Sissy removed. Yeah, and I mean a couple of things there are, are important and for those who, who have read any of this history, what we do know about the 1967 referendum for citizenship rights, although that's a misnomer in some ways, but we won't give a history lesson, 90% of the Australian population voted in favour of that change. So we can say, well overwhelmingly people wanted rights for Aboriginal people. That also is quite complex. What a lot of people don't know is that there were, if you look at the booth by booth analysis of that referendum, which is available, the closer you get to a mission, the stronger the no vote becomes. And I know this from a um, great friend of mine, people would know Gary Foley. When they, the 67 referendum got up, a lot of Aboriginal people who were then, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland, places like Sherbrooke and Queensland, were confined to the mission, and those mission managers, once the Commonwealth had taken over the administration of Aboriginal affairs, had no right to control those or contain those people. They said to Aboriginal people, they threw the gates open, and they said, and I'm going to swear, you know, people say, f off and say your code, because mm. you'll be back. Yeah. They had had a paternalistic, authoritarian relationship with these people, and they're saying, all right, go out there in the world and you won't be able to cope because you need us. Mm. So there's a whole industry, police, government officials, reserve managers, etc., who their whole livelihood was reliant on controlling people. And they didn't want change. Yeah. And what we know is, as expressed through Sergeant Lowe, he's incredibly anxious 
the changes coming. So his authority to control a 13-year-old girl will be lost. So he's acting with increasing violence and, and anxiety over this. And, and again, I know that to have historical reality, but as I've said before many times, none of that matters unless the story works. Mm. So I had to make the characters in the novel work as a story. And what I hope I did is that in Sergeant Lowe, people, rather than say, why would he do this? They, oh, this is why he's doing this. So when you've got someone who is a violent person, and I don't mean physically, there's no physical violence that he, that he carries out. It's psychological violence. Is that I hope readers go, I know what's motivating this character to do this, rather than, oh, I can't believe someone would do that. Which is sometimes a response that you can get if people don't want to look or be challenged by those histories. So again, as a novelist, yeah, when, when I buy a book, I want to enjoy the book. I want to get my, my money's worth. I want people to enjoy the book. But, yeah, the, the reality of these histories is you're also going to nudge people a little bit. You're yeah. going to challenge people a little bit to, to shift their, their view or, or to open up or expand your... your. I mean, I mean, I know it's in Twitch's third series now, but if you look at, say, a book like Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, when you first read that, the actual novel, it's a challenge to read a book which says this is how a woman's body is um, controlled. This is the violence we do to women that's conveyed in this futuristic novel. And that, I don't know about other people, but, I, but as a man reading that, that is putting a challenge to me to think differently about how women should be treated. Yeah. And speaking of which, just got, coming back to Sissy for a minute, she's, a, she's coming <coughs> of age, she's 12 or just turned 13, and there is a like a, a level of kind of innocence and greenness about her, but she's quite sharp at the same time, and she's got this her own kind of level of intuition, which at times surprises Odette. Um, I guess my question is: these kind of strong female figures are they, you know, reflective of people in your life, or what? What's the response been like for for the strong women in your life? Strong women in my life. I can't do anything. Um, yeah, from my mother to my youngest daughter and everyone in between. I'm, I, I told a story the other night. I, my daughters, I have four daughters, and they just say, fix this, dad, fix this, you know. And not fix a lock, it's like fix his ex-boyfriend who's stalking me or fix. And my oldest daughter, I, 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 it's weird because they give you a, they want you to be strong but only under their control. So my, I said to my oldest daughter there, and I said, well, I don't want to do this, Erin. Why should I do this? I'm not Tony Soprano. And she said, you are. And it, it was like a light bulb moment. That's who you are. You're Tony Soprano and you're going to do this. And you, what is this girl thinking? So my in my family, I'm regarded as a strong figure, but under direction of, 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 under the direction of my, my, my children. Um, it's interesting, say, to take Sissy, as we've a character, um, Rachel, in my um, first novel in 2011, Blood. When I thought of Sissy about there's a level of naivety and protection that she gets from Odette and there's that level of her striving for independence. I, you know, I do think of each of my four daughters and what they did at that age and what they might do in that situation as a sort of a, a, a test run. And what's odd about it is I always, as with I did with Rachel, I end up settling on my daughter Siobhan because she conveyed both that strength and vulnerability 
the others either too far <laughs> dependent or independent. So I did think about that in general. In general, about women. I mean, I've grown up mostly. Yeah, you know, I have really. I have brothers, but I think my two sisters are the, the really stronger figures in my siblings. Um, one of my brothers died recently, and um, my two sisters really just held the family together during that time. So, yeah, I've had a lot of models, but, but, but again, when you're creating a fictional character, and again, people sometimes misunderstand this. So, so if I said in some ways, yeah, when I think of the strength of our debt, I could think of the strength of my grandmother, yeah, both my grandmothers or my mother, but she's none of those people. You might just take values from those women. I actually love it that when you create a fictional character, you, you are building someone new. Yeah. So there is not there is Odette Brown is a very distinct character who epitomizes certain values that I admire and have been taught from women, but she is independent of all of those. Yeah. And I have like I say this, you know, writers are very idiosyncratic people. I have a very peculiar habit um, where I can't start a story or a novel until I've named the character, and that will never change. But so I spend a lot of time notebooks full of names, and yeah, you know, I, I I remember when I was thinking of this book, I, I was in Canberra at a um, writers' convention, and a woman introduced me to her mother. So my mum would love to meet you. She's read your books. So I said, okay. I said, how are you? She said, my name's Odette. And I just went, bang, there's, that's the name. And then when I said the name, I started to think about her mannerisms and I write those down. So by the time I get to do the first page, I've got a full sketch as in words of that character. So I think what you're doing as a writer there is you, you are, and this is not the original comment, a bird where you're picking bits and pieces and it's like they help you glue the character together. And so it is strength of women that comes out of experience, that comes out of my history, but also out of something new. And the reason that you have to be careful is that Odette is not my mother, she's not my grandmother, because if she was, you could be hesitant when you're writing what she will do. So you don't want to just to replicate what they would do. Yeah. So she's got to have her, I like it when I get to a scene. So there's a moment when Odette goes to the farmhouse and I'm thinking, what what will she do when she gets it? Because she's had this terrible news. How would she react? If I just had my mother as a model, my mother would be, she'd go there, she'd have a baseball bat, she'd go and she'd just go crash and hit the farmer over the head with it and be done with it. <laughs> Odette doesn't have a baseball bat. She's not my mother. So her approach is going to be different. So you've got to be you got to be careful not to get sucked into real life people yeah. who then can have too much of an influence on what fictional characters do. That was Tony Birch discussing his most recent title, The White Girl, with Laura LaRosa at Richmond Library earlier this year. We run regular author talks at all branches of Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on our website. For you, we'd recommend Jack Charles, who'll be telling stories from Jack Charles, a born-again blackfella, on August 29th in the Fitzroy Reading Room. If you're keen to read The White Girl, or any of Tony's earlier work, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. You could also download the ebook in Cloud Library, or the audiobook through RB Digital. 
If you're unsure how to use any of these applications, please ask your local librarian. In the meantime, if Yarra Library sees you staring at your phone on the train, we promise to assume that you're reading, not playing Candy Crush. You wouldn't want to disappoint us, would you? Happy reading! <laughs>